0: How do we design care for the whole person? It's a challenge for healthcare professionals in primary care practices, community hospitals, and ambulatory care centers. If you're listening to WIHI today, it might be a challenge at your organization as well. That's why we're proud to invite you to this year's IHI Summit on Improving Patient Care, being held April 26th through the 28th in San Diego, California. With more than 30 sessions of workshops, learning labs, inspirational keynote presentations, and a myriad of networking opportunities, you'll have the opportunity to explore cutting-edge improvement and engage with colleagues from all over the country on how to confront the mutual challenges of modern healthcare. This year, we're focusing on process, people, and partnerships, emphasizing new strategies around high-risk patients and populations, strengthening your workforce culture, and developing relationships between primary and specialty care. For more information on the summit, including scholarship opportunities for students and residents, visit slash summit or shoot us an email at info@ichi.org. Now here's WICHI.
1: One of the hardest things to change in American healthcare is the assumption that whenever we're feeling poorly, there's a test or procedure that can pinpoint what's wrong. Now, in an emergency or acute situation, that's usually the case, and that's a good thing. But once you move beyond the acute realm and more obvious symptoms and suspects, a thoughtful conversation between provider and patient starts to matter a lot more. But there are a lot of clinicians who don't know how to engage in these discussions with their patients, so much so it's often easier to just go ahead and order the tests and rule out anything worrisome. Now, patients tend to go along. After all, they've heard the horror stories and would rather be safe than sorry. But is this the best we can do for a diagnosis process? Well, not if our panel has anything to say about it. So the search is on for a new model of careful and mindful diagnosis, on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, our first from our new studio and new home in downtown Boston. We moved from Cambridge about a week ago. WIHI is our online audio talk show and it's offered live bi-weekly and after the show you can find it on IHI.org and on iTunes and I'm your host and producer Madge Kaplan and I also serve as IHI's Director of Communications. So this is an exciting WIHI because we are on the cusp of breaking some new ground in how we think about diagnosis and I say we but I'm really talking about our panelists and a slew of other colleagues so Those are the introductions I need to get to in just a minute. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He's going to remind you how to make the most of your time
0: with us today. John. All right. Thanks a lot, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Um, On the right of the screen, it's our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listen to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner. It says audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone, and the number will be on all the slides. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If you continue to have issues, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. Their number is on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, uh, uh, Vicki's provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash along with the chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. Finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Mitch.
1: All right. Thanks very much, John. And a reminder to everyone that we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway point of the show. You can tweet during and after the program. Thanks for including our handle at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so others can get engaged in this conversation. All right. To introductions, joining by phone, Christine Kessel is the executive advisor to the founding dean of the Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine. Medicine, which sounds quite exciting. Previously, Chris was the president and CEO of the National Quality Forum and also served as president and CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine and the ABIM Foundation. And she was dean of the Oregon Health and Sciences University School of Medicine. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Madge. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Also on the phone, we have Bruce Lambert. He's professor in the Department of Communication Studies and director of the Center for Communication and Health at Northwestern University, where he is also professor in the Department of Medical Social Sciences. Welcome, Bruce.
2: Uh, Hello, it's a pleasure to be here today.
1: Fantastic. And here in the studio with me is Gordon Schiff. He's a practicing general internist as well as Associate Director of Brigham and Women's Center for Patient Safety Research and Practice, Safety Science Director for the Harvard Medical School Center for Primary Care, and Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Gordy. Thanks. All right, and I've got Gordy to thank uh, for so much of what we're doing today, and I thank all our panelists as well for the help and preparation. So, Gordy, you're going to get the first question just to get us going here. Uh, It would appear that the diagnosis process, something you've been writing a lot about, is getting some long overdue attention due to two big issues, concerns about diagnostic errors and some ongoing concerns about ordering too many unnecessary tests. You're proposing that something else needs to happen—an underlying analysis, in a way—before um, solutions really uh, start to gain any traction. So, tell us what's missing. What? What? What's yeah. this all about? Thanks. Yeah, we've uh,
3: really, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is build on uh, a series of work that's been done. And Chris is going to actually. Castle is going to talk about both of these because she was part of the choosing wisely, as well as this. Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences panel. And through both of these initiatives, it turns out choosing wisely, more than half of the recommendations relate to diagnosis, improving use of diagnostic tests. And and most recently in 2015, this uh, report that Chris is going to mention that she served on the IOM NAM panel, we wanted to try to see how we could bring this together and build on this work. Um, we uh, know that doctors worry about missing diagnosis. It's a leading cause of malpractice suit. Patients are worried about a lot of things that they may or may not have, and that's why they come to physicians, clinicians for reassurance. And uh, so we put together a panel of people, and we've been trying to engage in a conversation, really uh, a national conversation. We have 15 experts. You'll see the full list at the end today uh, who I – Credit, but I also credit. We've been presenting these at um, at the international quality meetings. We presented this at the American Public Health Association, the the overdiagnosis conference in Quebec recently, and uh, these diagnosis and error medicine conferences, which we've had ten of these so far. So we're trying to get a, a conversation going, and I want to let Chris, you'll introduce, you'll introduce her, uh, lay the groundwork because these are the two uh, seminal efforts that we we
1: see our work building on. Okay. Thanks a lot, Gordy. So in order, we're going to get to these ideas about conservative diagnosis, appropriate diagnosis, careful diagnoses, relationship based, prudent, et cetera. Uh, but first we're going to talk to Chris about these significant things that you played a leading role in, uh, just to kind of help ground us in where, uh, where we've been with this issue. So that's, uh, Chris, uh, go right ahead. And, uh, let's let's uh, start with uh, choosing wisely and the 2015 IOM report on improving the diagnosis diagnosis process and what have each contributed Thanks again for being with us.
4: okay thank you so are we going to um, see the there's the first slide thank you uh-huh. um, well uh, first I want to sort of um, say that both of these, um, Huge efforts, Choosing Wisely and the IOM report on diagnostic errors, um, were building blocks towards better health care for patients. And um, I, I congratulate Gordy and all the colleagues who joined together on the work on conservative diagnosis because I think it definitely takes this work the next step. Let me tell you a little bit about choosing wisely. Many people are now familiar with it. That word has entered our vernacular, actually, um, in a very good way. In 2011 and 2012, when I was uh, president of the ABIM Foundation, I was concerned as many people were about the growing evidence for waste in our healthcare system. So we were all looking at need for better quality, better safety, uh, and better access for care, but the cost of care was a major concern as well. And there were many um authoritative reports from the government, from the National Academy itself, uh Estimating about one third of what we spend on healthcare was wasted—a shocking amount when it amounts to about a trillion dollars. In that one third, there was a major role of overuse of both treatments and and tests, and it was um, understood that this was in part physician-initiated overuse, but in part consumer-driven overuse as well, and. At the same time, people may not remember this, but at the same time, as soon as that issue would ever come up, there would there was a backlash about with fears of rationing and even death panels at the time. And so, my colleagues and I at ABIM Foundation thought, you know, the way to get beyond the rationing um, uh, alarms was to really have this be a conversation between doctors and patients and not involve the payers. So no insurance companies, no Medicare, um, no government, but doctors and patients uh, having a conversation about possible overuse and its risks. And to their credit, and really exemplifying professionalism, I think, in its finest form, Physician specialty organizations stepped up to the plate. The first, when we had our first announcement, it was nine leading specialty societies who selected five um, tests or treatments in their specialty that were overused or likely to be overused. So you had the best scientific experts saying, pointing the finger at themselves, and saying, "We know that this happens in our specialty." And once you had those were 45 things with those nine specialty societies. Well, now it's moved to over 45 societies, and as you'll see, many, many more um, uh, tests and treatments that have been identified. But the other key thing was not only, there you go, not only um, uh, were there um, this, this strong and credible voice from the medical uh, specialties um, about overuse. But we partnered with Consumer Reports, a very highly regarded voice of an evidence-based voice um, uh, for consumers, along with AERP and a long list. If you go on the Choosing Wisely website, you'll see a long list of consumer partners Because they too said, you know, the consumer needs to understand that more is not always better. And while your doctor may be saying, diagnostic tests can't hurt, let's just order some tests, as Gordy and his group have described well, every medical test as well as treatment has a downside, has potential risks that need to be understood in addition to the costs that they generate. So, um, th- these these uh, recommendations now, as you can see, more than almost 500 have been widely adopted by medical groups, by decision support, electronic devices, and have even gone viral internationally. Wendy Levinson has led an effort out of Canada and now involving dozens of other countries in the Choosing Wisely campaign internationally. So now if we go to the next slide, let me tell you a little bit about the IOM report, which came from a somewhat different, um, the same concern that we all have had about improving quality of care and that, of course, IHI has been a leader probably longer than anyone in this area. But as as someone at this point, I was at the... um, National Quality Forum, and we were all about creating measures to identify quality of care. And we noticed that um, almost every quality metric assumed that you made the right, right diagnosis. Is this patient getting the right treatment for diabetes or asthma or heart failure? When in fact, very often those diagnoses are not totally clear-cut. And yet we did not have any measures or any way, really, of measuring um, whether the right diagnosis had been made or whether the diagnosis was missed, as in not diagnosed at all or misdiagnosed, that is to say the wrong diagnosis um, applied to the patient. Both are equally concerning. So the Institute of Medicine Launched this report, and I was uh, privileged to be a member of the committee. And we, our emphasis in the report was the how to understand, how to bring this to the attention of both um, the medical and healthcare world as well as patients themselves. And we emphasized for things in our recommendations. We emphasized the cognitive awareness of the mental process that a physician or a nurse or other clinician goes through in making a diagnosis and how easy it is to jump to a conclusion and not think about something that might be a more unusual diagnosis that you need to pay attention to. So we had a lot of people who are experts in cognitive psychology and talking about reducing distractions during the um, patient encounter, improving um, uh, physical diagnosis and history taking, and importantly, access to effective reminder systems and decision support. The second point was to make sure that tests that are ordered, lab and x-ray tests, are are actually returned to the Uh, physician or clinician who's caring for the patient, that they themselves have standards for accuracy in these test results and that they get back to the person that they're supposed to get to. Really, a systems issue. The third is patient engagement, that the patient is a partner in this process. And if the patient comes to the physician and says, are you sure I have the right diagnosis, this headache is not going away, that that needs to be considered an important piece of information in the process and um, encouraging patients, because people do these days, to go online, check out what what you can learn about your own um, health conditions, and be sure to understand those and not be uh, intimidated at, uh, and not engage with your physician and help with the diagnostic process. But that leads to the fourth thing, which is the need for time and the interaction that just because you don't make a diagnosis on the first visit doesn't mean you send the patient away and never see them again. What it means is that you say to the patient, if anything bad happens or unexpected, call me, get back to me, come and see me in two weeks, let's see how you're doing. That gives you a chance to make the diagnosis in a thoughtful way and not have to jump to a conclusion by ordering tests that may be misleading. Now, some of the things I just described are things that you're going to hear from Gordy that are part of Um, our project on overdiagnosis, but for the IOM report, we thought about should we address the problem of overdiagnosis? What what if someone gets labeled with a diagnosis that causes them a lot of worry and they may even get treatments that are inappropriate, and then it turns out it was wrong? Um, We decided, we deliberated quite a bit about that and decided not to focus on that Precisely because we understood what a big, both of these areas were really big issues. So in the text, we identified, we said, this is also an issue and we're not going to address it. So with that, I'm going to turn this back over to Gordy.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, I think it's very, very important to understand sort of the journey we've been on here and Uh, Thanks, Chris. Uh, And Bruce is standing by. And now, Gordy, take it away. Yeah, so this is a
3: perfect transition. And I'm sure many people who listen to WIHI have heard of Don Berwick. And Don also got involved in weighing in on this uh, question where – should the committee uh, have decided to address overdiagnosis? It wasn't that they didn't aware of it. It wasn't that Chris isn't aware of that in terms of being part of choosing wisely. But he felt they may not define that as an error. But I think addressing that overdiagnosis is critical. And so, here's another uh, leader in diagnostic safety, Hardeep Singh. Uh, was asked, "This is the Wall Street Journal. When that report came out, uh, how do you avoid overdiagnosing?" On one hand, and incurring uh, unnecessary costs. Uh, uh, on, on the other hand, underdiagnosing. So he says, doctors need to balance, uh, strike a balance between ordering additional tests or procedures that often come with their own risk versus underdiagnosis by not investigating. There's so much national conversation now about overdiagnosis, overtesting, overtreatment, and healthcare uh, care co- related to cost. The midpoint of the pendulum is where we need to strive for, and that's not going to be easy. So we thought about this pendulum model and actually think it it may be the wrong way to think about this. This is not a linear uh, situation where you have to go too much in one direction versus too much in the other direction. But the way that I conceptualize this, and I think this is the starting point for this project that you're going to hear about, these 10 principles that we derived, is that really diagnosis errors and overdiagnosis are two sides of the same coin – that we're really looking for more appropriate diagnosis, more careful diagnosis, more patient-centered diagnosis. And, um, and these are nice rhetorical terms, but we tried to figure out operationally what that would take. What, what, what are we talking about here? And um, the other thing we wanted to do is really incorporate uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, ideas that we, we, we came out of from looking at prescribing and over-prescribing. So uh, Bruce, who's on the call here, was part of a project, and we've developed these uh, principles for more conservative prescribing. And we said, can we develop a conservative diagnosis paradigm? Here's another one. We have these 24 principles, and actually we're continuing to do work on this. Uh, the Moore Foundation, which is funding this project, is continuing to fund additional work on, on conservative prescribing. Maybe we'll come back and talk more about that. And one of the uh, bases that we're um, uh, coming from is something that I think most people are not familiar with, but it's sort of widely known in in a lot of these sort of environmental discussions. It's something called the precautionary principle. And it really says, you know, the risks and the benefits, some of them are uncertain, but we should err on the side of precaution of safety. Um, So it really shifts the burden of proof. If somebody wants to introduce a new test or a new drug, um, we need affirmative evidence that really helps and it's better, and also that it's not going to cause harm. So it places the burden of proof of, a, of an activity on proponents of an activity and and if, if we want to err on the side of of being conservative, of being cautious um, and, um, and and again, thinking a little more long term of what things are going to mean. So we took this precautionary principle and combined it with several other uh, approaches that we were very committed to. Uh, Our group uh, is very heavily uh, based in primary care principles. Having said that, uh, this really started as a conversation between uh, Dr. Edelman, who's dean at McGill, who's a a a pulmonary specialist, and myself. But so we've involved specialists in this conversation just as the uh, Choosing Wisely uh, movement as well but these ideas about having continuing care and relationships, knowing patients, people working together as a team, um, key patient safety lessons, sort of knowing where things go wrong, some of the things that come out of the IOM report, this culture of safety that really it's not about blame or blaming doctors for ordering too many tests or missing diagnosis but learning what we can from um, how diagnoses evolve – and, and the other is sort of a sort of critical of some of the market medicine mindset. It's a skepticism about a lot of new tests and procedures and gizmos are being introduced to uh, imaging um, tests. and we wanted to think long longer term and be critical of some of these. So we've developed these 10 principles. In the uh, time we have remaining, I'm going to very superficially briefly touch on, on these just to throw these up here. What you should know is we're uh, in the sort of final stages of putting this together as a white paper, and we have a lot of thoughts about each of these. But we think um, this takes what Chris did, for example, in choosing wisely, and rather than talking about it one test at a time, some overarching principles that might be helpful that we could hopefully train physicians and, and patients to be thinking in a little different ways and, and rather than a test-by-test basis. So I'm going to do this real quickly. Um, and... Uh, and apologize for each of them that I'm shortchanging. But, but so the first one is really sort of an, a new model for uh, caring and listening. Uh, a lot of patients come to the doctor and they said my head was hurting me. The patient didn't want to order a head scan. They didn't take my symptoms seriously. We want to change that model that that isn't the only way that one could be evaluating a headache. Uh, and so um, it's this idea about, you know, you can learn more from listening to patients, following patients over time. Um, thoroughness is, uh, in some ways, uh, trumps tests uh, in, in many of these uh, clinical scenarios, especially when you're talking about primary care. And so using tests is a shortcut. In fact, I could get rid of my patients very quickly. I could write them a prescription quickly. I send them for some tests. But that doesn't really involve listening A really thoughtful thinking about the diagnosis. So the second one is something we're calling a new science of uncertainty, and uh, it's sort of ironic that we're in the era of precision medicine, uh, and um, yet as we introduce all these new tests, uh, the amount of uncertainty in some ways is increasing. We're having more and more incidental findings. Every time we do these imaging tests, we're, people are coming away with things that were found. We're not sure what to do about them. Most of them are not of any significance, or going to cause patients any harm, and um, we think physicians really need to be trained, not that I, I'm always right and I know what I'm doing and we this is definitely this and definitely not that. And in many cases, we can be fairly confident. But by and large, there's always uncertainties about diagnosis. And we have to be, first of all, begin, begin to be more honest with our patients. We have to actually be, be, begin to be more honest with ourselves and more humble and modest about what we know and don't know. And you could say this is really uh, – and, and Bruce is going to talk about this. How do we talk about this with patients without scaring patients, you know, um, because people will will worry about things that uh, if I'm not 100% sure it's not cancer, what will that mean? So Bruce is going to uh, help us uh, talk about how, how we think about that better. A- another one is just this whole question about symptoms themselves. We uh, – We are very much uh, guided by the work of Kurt Kroenke, who's one of our panel members, who's spent two decades studying common symptoms that come to primary care. It turns out that somewhere between a a third and even a half in some studies of patients presenting with common symptoms, weight loss, fatigue, headaches, pain, head pain, headache pain, um, we really never find a precise uh, diagnosis. Now, you could say, well, that means we've ruled out organic causes, but th- this is sort of the wrong way to think about it. I think we need to work with patients, uh, keep the door open for what these different symptoms could be, but um, but what we really need to do is begin to sort of think about these symptoms over time, think about how to match symptoms to the syndromes that we know are, are serious causes. Uh, this is yet another way that I think physicians are going to have to rethink uh, our approach to symptoms. The next one, we call it a sort of continuity and trust. It really means knowing the patient in plain English. Um, I have many of my patients, they show up in the emergency room, they have pain everywhere, they end up with scans from head to toe. Um, I know these patients pretty well. I I know their history. I can kind of help sort out signal from noise. But if, 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 if they don't know the patient in the emergency room, they're forced to do that. So we have to think of systems that maximize continuity and trust, actually. So if I say you can't have this MRI for your back and I'm actually receiving a bonus from my uh, my risk contract. How do you feel about that? Uh, you know, you're going to suffer at my, you know, I'm going to, the patient is going to suffer at the doctor's expense. That's just poisonous. And we, we want to sort of get away from that. And Chris talked about that too, how introducing cost really is not going to be helpful. Just quickly touching on the other few here, taming time. Uh, a, a lot of the, people we presented these principles to say that's all well and fine, clinicians, but we don't have time to talk to patients and follow them and call them and and discuss the nuances of uncertainties. And um, I, I guess, again, Bruce is going to speak to this a little bit, but we feel that we need to figure out how to tame this time, this beast of time. It's part of um, diagnosis so centrally. Uh, first of all, there's something we call watchful waiting, uh, which in many people who develop respiratory symptoms. There's a lot of this going on in uh, in, in the country right now. Um, this is something that we really need to check in with people, see if they're doing better, progressing in the right direction. Uh, that's different from uh, unwatchful neglect. That's something that uh, is often happening. So we're just sending people out, You say, call if you're not better. So we should figure out how to Tame time. Obviously, we need more time in the encounters for listening to patients. Um, linking diagnosis to treatment. So if, if we're, if we're going to do a bunch of tests and they're not going to change how we treat the patient, we need to think critically about that. What what treatments are really going to make a difference? And so we got to make these linkages. Um, this is something that... Uh, um, applies to, you know, I mean, somebody who's going to, you know, get an MRI from their back, but they're not interested in having back surgery. So to be able to anatomically define exactly where the problem is uh, may or may not be helpful in terms of the treatment that we have to offer that work. Uh, Again, learning about how tests work and false positives and false negatives. Actually, one more thing that we want to emphasize with tests, and I think this next slide should show this. uh, We we have a longer chart, but this sort of summarizes people don't think of the downstream or even the upstream harms of tests. We know that there's benefits, but there's direct harm, there's complications, perforated colons, uh, reactions from uh, radiology dye, radiation itself causes cancer, Um, downstream harms from false positives, somebody's falsely reassured. Test is normal, and we have false negative tests. And then the whole cascade of what happens when you start seeing one of these incidental findings and that would have never harmed anybody. And then there's what we're calling harms intrinsic to diagnosis, that patients end up with stigma and anxiety about things that may or may not have ever caused them a problem or even taking your attention for more helpful ways of treating people. So finishing up these last three principles and then we'll throw it over to Bruce – you know, we wanted to learn, number eight, we wanted to learn the lessons from the diagnostic error movement. So that Institute of Medicine report, as, as Chris said, we see as a fundamental building block to the work we're doing, um, w- learning about what what pitfalls to anticipate and avoid, having a situational awareness. And then this whole idea about creating these safety nets that would, um, so if you know what to look out for and what diagnoses, errors, common errors are there, and which ones to avoid, then we can kind of practice safely in this other zone of things that probably are not critical to certainly do a lot of tests and rule out the first time you see a patient. Um, Number nine, we're going to ask Bruce to also talk about this, but Cancer is sort of lurking there in every – anybody who has abdominal pain or headache pain or um, – is, is, this, is this cancer? And people are very fearful and, of course, mostly it's not, but many people w- will have cancer and how do we think about that? And we, we, we're, we're working on ways of both understanding that and the evidence as well as how to talk about it. And finally, uh, you know, in a lot of these discussions, the specialists and the ED physicians are the bad guys. They're the boogeyman. We're going to incentivize patients with high copays. Don't go to the emergency room or um, prevent have gatekeeping to keep patients from going to specialists, um, or even the other way around of people just going directly to specialists. We want to change the role, and I guess the word is uh, stewardship. That just like infectious disease doctors used to be um, seen as sort of the the gateway to liberal use of antibiotics, we want specialists to be stewards for thinking more critically about the tests and their areas and uh, being more conservative, frankly. And we think we can look to them, and
1: they're stepping up to play that role, as in Choose Wisely. Gordy, uh, thank you so much. And you're going to be hearing more about all these principles. How many hours would you say it's taken to come up with those uh, 10 principles? Because you've been in a lot of conversations and working on some early uh, drafts.
3: Well, first of all, there were many more. We <laughs> yeah. boiled
1: it down, you know, twenty to twelve to ten.
3: Yeah. Um. Uh. You know, the um. I would say every hour was well spent. It yeah. was a total joy for me. I was in the middle of suffering from a very severe back pain problem this summer, and so in in the midst of dealing with my back. We were telling people about how to think about these principles, and and me playing the, the role plot devil's the devil's advocate about why I should have an MRI. I was I got up on a number of these conferences, so you know we, there's really sort of hundreds or thousands of collective hours that uh, we, we've really benefited from. It's been a real uh, um, uh, wonderful experience to be able to launch this on top of the prior work that Chris talked about.
1: Okay, did you have the MRI? Uh,
3: i did not <laughs> yeah okay. by by even many people's standards i even the choose wisely guidelines say no but then at a certain point it was getting worse but uh i, I tried yeah. to be true to my principles here and uh and i am happy to report my
1: back is, is Doing fine now. Well, that's good to hear. All right, Bruce, you've been very, very patient. Thank you very much. Um, And I hope everybody's getting ready to make some comments in the chat and uh, ask some good questions. So, Bruce, you come to us with a lot of knowledge about communication. Uh, and uh, I think Gordy has uh, referred to things that you might speak to around these issues about uncertainty perhaps in cancer or other scary things in particular but really reflect on anything you'd like to with respect to communication which is kind of inherent in and in a lot of these principles even working in our real world Thanks Bruce.
2: Thank you <clears throat> so. Uncertainty is, is one of many patient emotions, reactions, kind of psychological complexities that call for empathic communication in the clinical encounter. And this means being curious and, and listening. And I don't think generally there's enough training to do this for most physicians and, and other clinicians. I think now that we have all these clinical performance centers teaching docs to do the history and physical, that increasingly we're going to want to incorporate these difficult conversations about uncertainty into the training so that, so that um, young clinicians in training have some practice about how to do this. I think that conversations about uncertainty need to begin long before patients get very sick with uncertain diagnosis. It needs to be part of an ongoing dialogue where the, the doctor learns about the patient and the patient learns about the doctor's approach to practice. This way, when uncertainty eventually strikes, as it, as, as it inevitably will, it won't seem like the doctor's being defensive or, or copping out. Instead, the doctor can say, remember how we've talked about uncertainty. Let's talk more about um, what you think certainty might get for us, that maybe I can provide all those things you want without actually being completely certain. I, I think this is these conversations are not going to be easy because there's a kind of conspiracy of goodwill among doctors and patients where we want to believe All of the amazing progress of scientific medicine and technological medicine, our ability to image the body, to look inside the body with cameras, to understand the body's functioning with tests, it it seems that we ought to be able to reveal anything about what's happening to a person. And in many cases, we can. Um, So there is often certainty about what's happening to patients. But there's more often than maybe many people are led to believe there's uncertainty. People think that imaging and testing will always reveal the truth um, or, or, or the certainty, and, and it doesn't always. But that's a lot for a very sick or scared patient to swallow. Uh, once we're sick and we're scared, um, this, this idea that, that scientific medicine can figure it all out it gives us hope. It gives us a sense of security. So I think the challenge for clinicians is to show that they can offer hope and security and reassurance without certainty, that certainty isn't actually required to, to offer reassurance and, and comfort and so on. Um, so, so let me think about a couple of issues about what is uncertainty. Well, what are we uncertain about? Well, the clinicians may be uncertain about exactly what disease you have, about exactly what's causing the patient suffering on a given day, but what are we certain about? We can reassure patients that we're certain that your suffering is real, that we're certain we'll do our best to help you, to relieve your suffering, to ease your anxiety and your fear. We're certain that we will not abandon you. We're certain that we will not dismiss your concerns. All of this needs to occur both in a a continuous relationship like Gordy talked about, but also in a trusting one. So we have to develop a trust so that the patient can trust that, I, the clinician, will do my best to care for you, which means making choices with your input that will have the best chance of helping you and the least chance of harming you. And, and the clinicians have to be able to trust patients that they'll tell them their most important goals and their constraints and what isn't, isn't working. I think there are misconceptions about certainty that even if, as Gordy is alluded to, even if we have certainty about the diagnosis, we often don't have certainty about which treatment will work best for a given patient or what will be safe or what will be effective. Even with a certain diagnosis, there's an element of trial and error and customization for every patient. And you often don't actually need certainty to find an effective treatment. Um, and when, when we appear to be doing nothing, which might frustrate a frightened patient, we're maybe doing watchful waiting or the test of time, which lets the person's body tell us what the problem is. And it's often so much cheaper and safer than more testing. What about cancer? the patients that say are really, really afraid it's cancer. And I think an appropriate response is something like, boy, we're scared too. We're concerned about cancer too and about other serious diseases that we might miss. We're always on the lookout for them. And with your input, we might be willing to take more risks than usual to make sure we don't miss these serious diseases. But we want to talk about these risks because you, you often see headlines about missed cancer diagnoses and lawsuits, but you almost never see headlines about people harmed by too much testing. But we know this harm really does happen, and it happens frequently. And the doctor can say to the patient, I wanna protect you from this harm if I can. So when we deal with your concerns about cancer, our concerns about cancer, I'm hoping we can have a back and forth discussion about the risks and benefits. And and you might think that we should test aggressively because you'd rather be safe than sorry, but it's not so simple. You can end up being very sorry you did the testing even when, if we don't find any evidence of cancer. And one last thought maybe before we turn it over to the question. Um, what about this idea that it's all in my head? So I think patients fear that when they, a doctor can't find a specific diagnosis that will le- this lead to the conclusion that the, the suffering, the symptoms, the disease is all, quote, all in their head. So I think clinicians have to make a commitment to saying, we will never dismiss your concerns or make you think you're crazy or faking. At the same time, we have to somehow be able to have a conversation to say, look, when we say it's all in, you know, we're not going to say it's all in your head, but we think the head is part of your body. And experience tells us that past trauma, your thoughts, your feelings, your beliefs, your anxieties, your fears can affect your health. And mental illness, anxiety, depression, psychosis, that are real. And we we sometimes have to think about how those things might play into uh, how you're feeling. Um, you know, we have a lot more specific recommendations, but I think those are the main points, um, that, that, that I wanted to cover other than maybe saying, you know, we can reassure patients that we can say, look, I don't know exactly what's happening with you yet, but I, I don't doubt you that something is going wrong and we're going to keep trying to figure it out. And we're going to have a plan, which includes kind of an open door policy about coming back, a concrete plan about follow up, a rationale for that plan. Um, prioritization of concerns that should make the patient come back sooner or call emergently, stuff like that. Uh, So those are my main thoughts, and I look forward to hearing some of the – Questions from the
1: audience. Thank you so much, uh, Bruce. Those are really a lot of interesting ideas uh, to ponder, as uh, have been all the comments from Gordy and Chris as well. All right. uh, We went over just a little bit in our chunk of time here for Q&A, but uh, go ahead, please. We're very, very interested to know who's joined us on the program uh, today and what are some of your thoughts. Uh, we're all patients at some point, and, uh, but we're, of course, wondering, uh, how some of these ideas resonate in terms of changing behaviors and perspective on this. Um, I, I thought I would ask, uh, you, Chris, if it's okay. One, as people are kind of gearing up here, particular question sort of taking us back to choosing wisely and the very active uh, participation of specialists uh, in that initiative over the last five years. At the same time, I think that a lot of patients experience specialists, let's say, and this may be as distinct from a, somebody's primary care practitioner, but specialists, uh, if, if they've done the tests and nothing turned up uh, and whatever, uh, they're kind of done with you um, and don't really have a lot of time to talk about vague um, ideas and uncertainties and that sort of thing. That has at least I'm, – I'm just offering kind of a straw man here uh, from experience. Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about what should be expected. A lot of these discussions – We're sort of imagining maybe somebody who really does know you over time, as Gordy was suggested, and yet sometimes people are seeing the best this, the best that for a particular thing, and um, everything's come up empty, and yet problems or symptoms may still persist. Any thoughts on that?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very good question, and it's the reason why in um, our project, and Gordy described this, we emphasize the role of the primary care physician, not as a gatekeeper, but as the coordinator. And, you know, my specialty is not only general internal medicine, but also geriatric medicine. So, nowhere is this more important than as people get older and Nor You know, the average number of diagnoses that an older person has is probably four, five, six. Many are on 10 different medications. And if you think every time something you think is wrong with your heart, you go to the cardiologist. The cardiologist says your heart's fine, and they send you to the gastroenterologist because they think it might be heartburn. Well, that's a completely, you know sort of in not only inefficient, but not a caring way of saying to the patient, just what Bruce did, which is we're going to get to the bottom of this, whatever it is. And it may m- mean that you need a specialist to look into particular possibilities to explain your symptoms, but someone and if you're fortunate enough to have a good primary care clinician, then um someone is going to be the person who does know you, Madge, and who can say to you, you're not you're not headed off the end of a cliff, you know, if if this comes back, call me. And, you know, if you say that, you have to be able to answer, maybe if you not you personally, but here's another argument for good systems of care and teams where patients really don't feel let's say on a weekend that if something does happen and their headache gets a lot worse or they start having other symptoms that they don't have anybody they can go to mm-hmm. and so that's one of the, the more important things about having a comprehensive care um, system around the patient. So those two things, a A generalist of some sort, a geriatrician, pediatrician, family physician, nurse practitioner, general internist, someone is takes responsibility for knowing the patient and coordinating the care. Second thing is access to specialists who will share the information easily so that Everyone who sees a patient has that information, and the third is twenty-four-seven access, so that the patient really does always feel there's backup.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, Gordy. Did you want to say anything add to that? Thank yeah. you, Chris.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, we talk about continuity, and, and I think the imagery of Doctor Welby, who knows the patient, uh, is is one that we shouldn't let die in terms of relationships and knowledge of patients over time, although. As, as Chris described we have to think of other ways of creating that that continuity the informational continuity the the handoffs the coordination uh, there won't be a hundred percent of the time when people are seeing people they know but uh, we think this healthcare system could do a whole lot better if it
1: prioritized continuity again for the sake of uh, a better diagnosis Thank you very much um okay thank you yes all participants please if you have comments here here come a few. Um, <laughs> any current efforts in changing the public's perception of diagnosis, physician ability, and medicine outside the clinic? Uh, this person is thinking of a lot of <laughs> telenovelas, and I'm sure a lot of other kind of programs that we all watch in which, uh, we're the doctor remains the hero, uh, saving the day, figuring out all the, the very confounding problems. Um, public perception, uh, Part of what we're doing here, uh, of course, is we're trying to raise this awareness, uh, with WHI at least, and I think Gordy and, and you and your colleagues, within the healthcare uh, community. But there's a very big piece here uh, also, I think, uh, for patients. And uh, my hope is, of course, that patients and families will get an opportunity, to, uh, Gordy, to kind of have some thoughts about uh, the principles themselves and are there any any that may be missing um, that patients and families might find useful?
3: Yeah. I mean, I could just mention, uh, I think it's true. We're swimming upstream here, the, the public imagery and and the, the Dr. House and the great doctors and what people who come into medical school think they're aspiring to be is, uh, is, is something that we're swimming against the, the grain. And we, although we don't think fundamentally uh, that's, inconsistent with people wanting the right answers. Um, You know, Lisa Sanders, who's one of our uh, people on our group that's helping put this together, recently did one of her New York Times. She does the the mystery case that was cracked wide open by some – smart doctor or, or lucky clue or whatever, uh, a couple of cases ago, did one where they couldn't get the – it was just unclear at the end of the day what was the answer. So I don't think that shifted the entire American public opinion. But I think we're seeing little signs of this. I think the controversies about screening for prostate cancer and breast cancer and um, how often we should be doing this and how what how do we interpret these incidental findings um, – we're gonna th- those mm-hmm. those issues are are hitting people in the face or in the gut or in the prostate or whatever. Um, so <laughs> the, the, those issues are very central to what we're talking about. And uh, people keep saying, "Well, I, I'm just going to make sure I don't have cancer and I'll do everything I can avoid it as a woman or a man with breast or prostate." But we, we now know that you know for every person that we may help and find early cancer, we're harming. Uh, you know, X number more, 10 or 15 or 20 in, in some uh, screening situation. So, we need to look at this critically. And I think uh, – so, that's another realm where where this conversation is changing. Um, okay. I, I think even learning from errors and, uh, you know, the whole malpractice thing, I think uh, one of the questions I would anticipate is is someone saying, I, I, I try to practice this way, but we have to practice defensive medicine. Patients are going to sue us if we don't do all these tests. And uh, I think – uh, you know part of this whole coalition this whole effort includes um the legal people the, the malpractice people the apology and disclosure people um and 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 Bruce has been working on this front heavily so i think all this is going to be part of threads I, I i would say to try to uh turn turn the, the tide of this stream in, in a different direction okay thank you uh,
2: may I just go bring, right uh, ahead go. so I actually think that the question about telenovelas is, you know, is barking up the right tree. We need something that shapes the popular image of medicine in a balanced way, which takes us away from the extreme heroic view or the view of doctors as as conflicted villains or something like that, but just a realistic view that medicine is still more uncertain than we wish it was, though it's often certain, it's often not. Um and that that it's often beneficial though it's often harmful. These are difficult truths for the medical establishment to to promote. We don't want to talk about how much harm there is, but those of us who, who are followers of IHI know that there's much more harm than than we can accept. And so so these are difficult messages. And I wonder if I could jump to the next question about this is, you know, doctor-patient relationships are building trust. Do you think medical schools are dealing with this topic adequately, particularly listening to the person and understanding their life? I think medical schools are doing more than they ever have historically, and they're to be commended for that. I personally, as someone who's committed to studying communication and health, still don't think they're doing enough. I I think that we have all these clinical performance centers where uh, doctors in training can talk to standardized patients and be videotaped and be be critiqued, but there's still lots of evidence. If you look like at the book by Alan Schwartz and Saul Wiener called Listening for What Matters, they show that that doctors frequently miss the contextual aspects of care, that is, like listening to the person and under, understanding their life. So I think there's tremendous headway to be made uh, in, in that area, and, and it involves training young doctors and and also providing additional training for for more senior doctors as well.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think that uh, this whole realm seems tailor made. Uh, this conversation, uh, Gordy, for training um, and yeah. kind and, of these and Chris issues. Chris is on the line. Yeah.
3: She's part of a new yeah. venture, uh, really, the, with, with this at its core. Maybe you want to comment, Chris, where this fits into what you're doing day-to-day at Kaiser with the new school.
4: Uh Thank you very much. Yeah, it is exciting, and that's um, part of what I was um, sort of describing when I talked about the comprehensive care environment that leads to a patient being more trusting um, and, and leads to the physician and the clinician having all the information they need at the time. One of the
0: issues of uncertainty
4: is sometimes just that you know somebody else ordered some tests and you reorder them, which is even makes it worse. Um, So um, Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine is starting with the premise of embedding a medical school within a high-performing integrated um, prepaid healthcare system. So it's not in a fee-for-service model. All the doctors are on salary, um, and so the culture of medicine, the way it's practiced within KP, is very team-based. Everyone has the same electronic medical records, so it's very electronically based. The the um, patients uh, access the care electronically too. 52% of all the encounters are either over email or scheduled phone calls or telemedicine. So it ends up being a much more efficient model and very reassuring. As a patient, you can just email your doctor a question and get an answer back or send them a picture of your rash or it it, it helps with that process of managing time that Gordy talked about as well as um, setting up a relationship over time where you never feel like you're being sort of shoved off to some other specialist. Um, So it's in that system that we're going to educate these students. But we also, and this is one other thing I just want to have our audience consider, we also are very conscious of the fact that our first students, after they do residency training, will begin to practice medicine in 2029 or 2030, so, think about that for a minute. What is the world of healthcare going to look like in twenty thirty? What is our society going to look like in twenty thirty? What is technology going to look like in twenty thirty? What is precision medicine and genetic information going to look like in twenty thirty? So, we really are taking very seriously training these students to be um, to understand change, to manage change to live in a world of great uncertainty and to be able to think through problem solving for themselves rather than simple algorithms that they might have learned their third year in medical school that really um, are going to be eclipsed either by new medical knowledge or by new ways of relating to patients or or uh, technologies that for communication that occur in the future.
3: I, Th- thanks, Chris. Yeah. I can jump in. I, I'm yeah. seeing two questions that sort of look like they're yep. different, but I, I think they come together. Is, is, is there a consensus among the panel that value-based contracts are – let's see, you scroll – are not always a good thing. Curious to know the impact of these contracts they have on the medical community. And then somebody asked about the VA. Um, so… so um, I think whoever asked the question did pick up on something that I think has been one of the lessons of this choosing wisely and and our perspective that you really need to uh, have this um, financial neutrality of medical decision making. This whole idea that there's a conflict of interest uh, if my primary care doctor says no to an MRI in order to get a bonus – or if actually if they if my if my PCP owns the MRI machine down the street, I mean these are these these are colorless decisions that I think are going to undermine the trust, and I think the trust is so valuable. Um, I, I think this whole idea about creating financial barriers so if I'm rich I can have the MRI, but if I'm poor I'm going to think twice about it, and the disparities. Uh, we would rather have. The MRI go to the people who it's most appropriate to have an MRI, um, and and then you mentioned the VA system. So you know, we, you know, the VA is a is a, is a system where there, there's first of all continuity. Okay, there's a single payer system. Uh, people are thinking about uh, being able to provide services, so we can have these weekend call services because that's going to uh, have. Uh, Other benefits. So people are thinking bigger and broader in terms of the financial implications. Uh, uh, You know, I I think. Actually, systems that have a better continuity of care, single-payer systems internationally have much better continuity of care. And we've talked about how important it is to be continuously with the physician. The The Commonwealth Fund does these, these surveys. And, you know, these these countries are in the 80s or 90s percent, and we're in the 50s and 60s percent of continuous care with the same clinician for five years, for example. So... Um, And, and of course, you can imagine if you're losing your health insurance, you can't go back or you're being switched to a different managed care plan. So a lot of this um, aspect of of how things are being uh, uh, fragmented in our current system or or I think in this this sort of market-oriented approach really uh, may be going in the wrong direction.
1: Thanks, Gordy. Well, um, I always hate it when we're at 3 (laughs) o'clock. Eastern time, uh, we've uh, thrown up a slide here just to remind people that a lot of these conversations uh, can and will uh, continue in a lot of different settings, including at IHI's uh, 2018 IHI Summit. So we invite you to uh, take a look uh, into that information on our website coming up in April. Um, And I also want to just acknowledge, uh, you know, Gordy, you showed that slide about uh, the two sides of the same coin. Um, and uh, I was thinking that uh, these some of these final questions here in one case somebody is mentioning that there's just not enough time uh, with the primary care practitioner uh, and this person offers a model of uh, more time that seems to you know be more valuable another person says primary care practitioners refers to a study look how many uh, things that were missed in diagnosis and I think it it's a reminder of that we're actually talking Talking about the same issues. Uh, it's not a zero-sum game here. It's really kind of changing. And I think these issues of taming time and what happens in that time is is probably subject almost for another show.
3: Now, we have this list of the yep. people who've worked with us. Go ahead. Our last slide. Can you jump to that? Is that easy, yep, easy? Yeah, sure. There you go. There you go.
1: So I certainly
3: – I did credit these uh, – Hundreds of people and thousands of hours and and seriously at the IHI forum, we presented this and got a lot of uh, good discussion and ideas. But this is sort of the broader team. I've alluded to a number of the people on the call with us today and who uh, have been uh, working with us in these series of, uh, of brainstorming sessions to try to come up with this. And we're going to be publishing this paper so people can look forward to hopefully seeing
1: this in print and Reacting further to it. And you heard it, uh, well, maybe not first, but at least you did hear it on uh, WIHI. And we're very, very grateful. I really leaned on Gordy uh, when the minute I uh, took a gander at the presentation at the IHI forum, I thought that this would be a very, very valuable early look at, at some sneak of the preview, s- yeah. sneak previews. So I want to really thank Gordy Schiff, Chris Castle, and Bruce Lambert for your time, for preparing uh, with me for the program today and for sharing all this information with the audience. And I want to thank all of you who joined live. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you and uh, your telling others uh, about the program. And I guess it's a question of watch this space. Uh, Next up on WIHI on February 22nd, we're going to be talking about aging in place with a disability and dignity. And I hope you'll tune in there. The innovative model, excuse me, innovative model called Capable uh, and a handyman is involved, uh, which uh, is intriguing, and we'll explain why. Reminder you can download the chat, uh, all the slides um, that we shared with you uh, when you get off the program today. You'll also find them on our website tomorrow, along with the audio and uh, consider subscribing to the podcast, and you can always write a review. In the meantime, there is a survey that pops up when you get off the program, and if you would take just a minute to let us know how we did today and what we could do better, that would be great as well. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. Again, my thanks to our panel, thanks to the audience, and we have also a great group at WIHI who make this show possible. they include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Jamison Case, and Val Weber. And it's my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. I think the diagnosis issue uh, points to many, many, many issues right now, and it's a good one for us to be digging into. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.